When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. The U.S. economy and the rest of the world. And the depopulation bomb. Rashir Sharma. What's very apparent and underappreciated is the major drop-off in the world's working-age population growth rate. That after growing at 2% a year for much of post-war history, over the last decade that growth rate has dropped by a full percentage point. And I think that is a major drag on global economic growth rate. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, you know, our recent podcasts have been jumping around from the personal to the political, micro, like gratitude and personal finance, to macro, politics and the environment. Well, there, there aren't many topics more macro than the rise and fall of nations. And that's the name of a new book by Rashir Sharma, head of emerging markets and the chief global strategist here at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So we brought our portable podcasting studio to the conference room here at Morgan Stanley in Midtown Manhattan. And welcome, Rashir, to How Do We Fix It? We're in the middle of a presidential campaign right now, and the candidates from both main parties say they'll fix it. To what extent can they do that? Well, I think that it is very difficult. The United States has moved towards being a post-democratic society, uh, that the institutions here are, are so strong and so set that for any one person to come and change the fate of this nation is extremely difficult. We have seen a rather complacent reaction in the financial markets also to what is happening in the presidential election. Because if a leader like Trump was rising in some emerging market with these kind of views, I'm quite sure that country would be in the midst of a financial panic by now. What a leader can do to change the fate of a nation in an emerging market is so much more than what can be done in a developed country, because there the institutions are just not that strong. So a leader's whims and fancies can have a big difference on a country's economic fortune. So the institutions in the United States, as well as the global economy, prevent one leader from being able to have a huge impact on the economy? Yeah, but more the institutions than the global economy. It's these other factors. For example, what do you do with the demographic problem, where the labor force participation rate uh, you know, has declined over time, or the fact that you have a big decline in the working age population growth rate. Now, even here, the United States is doing relatively better compared to Japan or Germany or other countries in Europe or even China. But I think that this is a real problem. So you feel there are two main drivers of economic growth. 
Yeah, the increase in a country's labor force and the increase in productivity. And the main point I make in the book is that whereas we don't know what to do about the decline in productivity, what's very apparent and underappreciated is the major drop-off we've seen in the world's working-age population growth rate. That after growing at 2% a year for much of post-war history, over the last decade, that growth rate has dropped by a full percentage point. And I think that is a major drag on global economic growth currently. A drag not only in the United States and developing nations, but elsewhere. Elsewhere as well, yes. Right now, we're seeing a big backlash against immigration in the U.S., but you're an advocate for legal immigration. Yeah, I mean, my entire point here is that if you look at countries such as Canada and Australia, that these countries were able to to use immigration in a very useful way to try and counter their demographic challenges and then have been able to grow and become more important economies on the back of a successful immigration policy. So they did that to increase the workforce and that helps improve growth. Yes, absolutely. You wrote a piece in The Guardian this summer that said that globalization as we know it is over. Yes. Why? There are three aspects to globalization and all three of them we have seen a major turn. One is increasing share of trade in the global economy, right? Historically, trade grew faster than the global economy. But this decade, we've seen trade grow slower. Trade has been contracting and that's never happened outside of a global recession. So trade flows have fallen The number of protectionist measures that countries are taking has gone up everywhere from India to China to the United States. Then we have capital flows too. Banks are much less willing to lend across borders than they were last decade because of all the problems they're facing at home. And then third, very interestingly, immigration flows have fallen. So the world is getting less interconnected on these classical parameters. Now, of course, it's getting more connected in terms of information sharing and internet uh, and possibly even increased tourism. But the way that we knew globalization, and which is more trade, more capital flows, more immigration, on all those three fronts, we've seen a turn this decade. So you're saying countries are turning inward? Yes, countries are turning inward and more nationalistic in this post-crisis era. Does that worry you? Yeah, I think that these are trends which help the global economy. The buzzword this decade is likely to be deglobalization because of these trends. But at the same time, there are policy differences between different countries, and they have very, very different performance. You talk a lot in your book about Latin America and how Chile uh, outperformed most of the rest of the continent. Uh, How would you contrast what their policies were with, say, Argentina and Brazil, and why did they have those different outcomes? Economies which focus on manufacturing do much better than economies which are dependent on commodities for exporting. And that's the big difference between Latin America and Asia. That why are most of the economic miracles found in Asia? Because they focused on manufacturing, focused on exporting. And whereas in Latin America, they focused more on growing through commodities. Brazil today is as poor as it was uh, 100 years ago relative to the United States. And right. yet it wasn't that long ago. Everybody talked about the BRICS, That's you know. Right. And, uh, and the Brazil miracle, yeah. yeah. The Brazil miracle. So the BRICS, we mean Brazil, Russia, Russia India, India, and China. China. And what I show in the book is if you look at Brazil's history, it's very clear, which is that it goes up with commodity prices and goes down with commodity prices, right? And commodity prices over time, at least in real or inflation-adjusted terms, do not tend to go up. So when we talk about commodities, we're talking about products like mining products, metals, farm products, as opposed to advanced manufactured goods or financial products or technology. 
Right. Exactly. What doesn't matter that we often talk about? I know that one of the things that we hear a lot about is how does the U.S. compare with other nations in terms of competitiveness? Yeah. Or, or education. Or education. There are various surveys that come out and yeah. talk a lot about that. You're kind of a skeptic. Yeah. I'm a skeptic of that because what I show in the book is that education is a bit of a chicken egg story that we don't know whether better education leads to higher economic growth or is it as countries get wealthier, they spend more on education so they get better education systems. That relationship is not clear cut. Let's keep the outlook practical. And for me, the outlook is about the next five to 10 years. And even the work which shows that education makes a difference, the time it takes is typically 50, 60, 70 years. So who knows as to what's going to happen after we get good education systems and how long it's going to take for that to actually filter through to higher economic growth. So yes, we can say we want good education, but let's be clear that it's going to have no material impact on a country's fortunes over the foreseeable future And for me, that foreseeable future is no more than five to 10 years. I'm a little bit surprised to hear you say that because, for instance, there are a bunch of companies saying that they need better qualified, skilled workers. Right. So you're saying that it doesn't make a huge difference in terms of of the economy? Yeah, there are two points. The time it takes before you have better education, better skills for that to actually permeate into higher economic growth, the time it takes is very, very long. And we don't know which comes first. I don't think any country can make a big difference through education to jumpstart its economy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So in your book, The Rise and Fall of Nations, there's that theme of skepticism, but also a certain economic humility. You, you say again and again, you really can't predict things right. more than five, certainly 10 years out. How did you come to this worldview. You've spent a lot of time traveling around these different developing countries. Yeah, that's because I've just seen so often that trends tend to fade so quickly, which is that what is hot one decade is rarely hot the next decade, right? So, uh, you know, like the 1980s was all about Japan. 1990s was all about the NASDAQ and the technology and the productivity miracle in the United States. The last decade was all about the bricks and commodities. And in terms of all these economies have slowed down and Brazil and Russia are just emerging from deep recessions where the economy is actually contracted. And if you look at all the forecasting work in 2010, which was done, it was all about, about how these economies were going to grow you know, at these sort of robust rates endlessly into the future. So I think my entire point is that trains don't last for more than a decade. I've learned it the hard way. And, and to add on to that point in your book, you talk about the contrarian value of cover stories. <laughs> yes. that if, it, if it ends up on the cover, that's an indication that that trend has passed. Yes. I began my career as a writer. 
And uh, when I first began my career as a writer 25 years ago, I would often hear about the curse of the cover story. And so the, the curse of the cover story. Exactly. So yeah. we finally decide, okay, let's put this to test. Let's figure out whether there's some actual merit to this or is this a, just some silly journalistic superstition. So we looked at Time magazine. And it's not to pick on Time magazine, but Time sort of captures what the global consensus is. And I think that by the time the editors of a major publication such as Time are emboldened to put something on their cover, it's a bit too late because the trend is already mature. So in fact... We looked at all the Time magazine covers going back to 1980. And what we showed here was that if a country was projected in a positive way on the cover of Time magazine, then in the next five years, there was a two-thirds probability that the growth rate of that country would decline. (laughs) On the other hand, if the country was projected in a negative way, there was more than a 50% probability that that country's growth rate would accelerate in the next five years. That's extraordinary. The evidence suggests that trends typically don't last for more than a decade or after five years, many countries with growth spurts tend to fade. There's an economic and political logic to this as well. The political logic really is that once a country is on the cover of a global magazine, often the leaders of the country become complacent. They're quite happy to gloat and to sort of uh, soak in all this publicity. On the other hand, many countries only tend to reform when they have their back to the wall. And that's what we're seeing in Brazil just now. Brazil sort of went from being this darling of uh, the global investment community to being this basket case last year. And then you got this change in leadership. And now for the first time in years, we're seeing talk of reforms, of spending caps, pension reform, even words like privatization, which were taboo, are back in the economic mainstream in Brazil. But you also talk about how then the trend goes the other way. In your book, you talk about the evolution of Putin, who started, we forget now, but he really started as a reformer. Yeah. So that's the other sort of, I spent an entire chapter on politics. And the longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is for a country. And that's illustrated by both the examples of Putin and Erdogan, that both these leaders today were cast as villains by much of the global investment community. When they first started out, they were very different. And I detail my experience with Putin, that how he was in 2000, 2001, and then when I met him in 2010, what a different person he was. And didn't you manage to sort of tick him off a little bit? Yeah, I did, because where I was invited to Moscow in October of 2010 to speak about Russia's economic fortunes. I went up there and I was told very clearly that you should give your frank thoughts about Russia. I took that word frank rather seriously. And so I started off on a presentation where I spoke about Russia in the presence of Putin, about how when he first came to power, Russia was in trouble and what he had done initially had really helped the country. But 10 years on, the country was slipping back. It, was, it had no small scale to medium sized industries. It was dominated by a few large oligopolies. Uh, there was, of course, widespread cronyism, corruption. So I had a whole laundry list of what's wrong with Russia 10 years on. And you didn't know this was being broadcast live on TV. Exactly. I did not know that. But, you know, and Putin, the, the great player that he is, after I finished speaking, he applauded and he got up and he spoke and he acknowledged some of the points I had to make. But the next day, I was woken up early by my office asking me, what have you done? And, and, I, <laughs> and I asked him, you know, what have I done? Then they said, haven't you read the Russian press? I said, no, I don't read Russian. I have no idea. Then they told me that the Russian press had really gone after me the next morning. They were very upset by what I had said and that I'd come there and spoiled the party and how I had not played ball and who needs my money? I can take my money and go home. That's really was the tone of the Kremlin control press. Uh, I was advised that it's best to leave the country. I left the country that evening and I haven't gone back since. But that kind of atmosphere of 
a lack of democracy can really hurt a country's growth. Yeah, the, in terms you, of you, you need that argument yeah, going I mean, on like, constantly. Yeah, but more importantly, it's sides. about as I said, it's about how long a leader stays in power. Which mm-hmm. is the longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is for a nation. Whether it's a democracy or an authoritarian regime, it really doesn't matter. The problem with an authoritarian regime is the volatility of outcomes in an authoritarian regime tends to be much greater than in a democratic regime. So you use Putin as an example of how sometimes a leader can evolve. He actually began as a reformer, yes. right? He was talking about the state staying out of business, uh, about more integration with Europe. He wanted to westernize the economy and to modernize it. So if you read some of his speeches in 2001, they were so different from the kind of speeches that he was giving by 2010 when I met him. And whereas today he presides over an economy that's maybe one of the world's worst in terms of crony capitalism. And one of the metrics you look at when you're analyzing a country is the, the mix of what you call good billionaires and bad billionaires. What do you mean by that? Well, I think you know, this is how my thinking has evolved, which is that income inequality is not something I would have put in as one of the 10 factors to look at about how a country is about to shape up a decade ago. But today, I think income inequality has become a very big issue across the world. And what I'm looking for is in which country has it become such a big issue that it is likely to retard economic growth. Because and it might lead to populist political so, reforms yes, that are, yes. that are so, counterproductive. So in, yeah, income, income inequality, the way that the wealth is distributed in distributed, the country yes. actually not only becomes a, a social issue, but, it, but also an economic issue. Yeah, no, I'm saying that the social issue really feeds into it being an economic issue. Because if the people of the country are against the process of wealth creation, that is really bad for a nation. And a lot of the data on on income inequality tends to be very backward looking and dated. So I've tried to come up with my own system of looking good versus bad billionaires. If I find that a lot of wealth is being created by billionaires in industries which are prone to corruption or where people have created their wealth because they had the right government connections. So in mining, real estate, uh, oil, oil. So, so those, those are bad billionaires. Yes. So, so, so I'd say that now not everyone's bad, but the balance is what matters. If you get a lot of wealth created by those billionaires, then the people of the country don't respect the wealth creation in that nation because the they think hand, it's corrupt. It's corrupt and it's unfair. On the other hand, I'll say in defense of the United States that the good part is that a lot of the wealth which is created here especially of late, has been in industries such as technology, pharmaceuticals, and manufacturing. And typically, when you get billionaires who rise from those industries, they tend to be good billionaires, because that sort of wealth is respected. I want to ask Jim a question. And that is usually at this time in our show, we talk about, well, here's a solution. There are five solutions to this problem. We're not doing that with this show. Well, I mean, I think sometimes the solution is a specific policy proposal. Other times the solution is making sure you understand the problem. But that said, you show many cases there are policies that do make a difference. I mean, what would be your short list for a country that wants to maximize the economic well-being of their people? Where do you start? Well, I think that it depends on what the problem is. If a country is facing a problem of depopulation, then the three solutions to that are one is that you have to increase immigration. But I don't see that happening in many countries today, but that is a solution. Second is about increasing the retirement ages, right, in terms of having a more flexible labor market and increasing so the retirement ages. So having people ages. retire, say, later. Like longer, yeah, exactly, or 70, because, like, not 65. Uh, yeah, because people are living longer and people are living healthier compared to where they were tw- you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so that imposes burdens on, on the retirement system and on the economy. That's right, and also the fact that if you want more people, you need more hands on deck, right? So mm-hmm. you need more people out there. And the third is to increase the female participation in the labor force. 
So like those are three solutions I offer if a country is suffering from a depopulation bomb. In Japan's case, that's the real issue which people don't understand. Japan's economic growth rate is still stuck at near zero. Yet their unemployment rate is very low at 3%. The demographics are so bad that for the first time last year, Japan's population contracted overall. You know, so that's and yet they're very hostile to immigration. Exactly, and that's a real problem. And Korea seems to be learning the right lessons. And that in Korea, you have a slightly more friendly immigration policy compared to Japan, because Korea understands what can happen to a country which suffers from a major demographic headwind. So those three points about increasing female participation in the labor force, more immigration, and raising the retirement age all speak to there being more people in the workforce. Exactly. So that's really your central point. Even more important, say, than increasing productivity? No, I'm saying my point about increasing productivity is that that is such a wide topic. And like, you know, how do you increase productivity? We just don't have a good grip on. Problems I find with a lot of the punditry when people go up and say, hey, we need structural reforms. We need to increase productivity. These are good slogans. But what is it that, that any country can realistically do to increase that? But I think that some things we also tend to overlook, which is that look at China's problem today. What is China's central problem today? It is that in its mad dash for growth, that we want to get to 6.5% economic growth no matter what happens. We want to double our GDP by 2020. China is taking on so much debt that I keep reminding myself of that traffic slogan, better to arrive late than never, right? So which is that this mad dash for growth is what's causing problems in China. So often solutions are about avoiding these pitfalls rather than looking to fix everything. We're in danger of arriving late. Rashir Sharma, uh, the author of Rise and Fall of Nations, thanks very much. Yes, thanks Enjoy so that. much for thanks joining so us. Much. So usually in our show, we're all about solutions, and we sometimes have some bullet points of what we can do. And one of the reasons we decided to speak with Rashir Sharma is he's not that kind of guest. Right. So the point here is not so much, here's a laundry list of policy prescriptions. It's first, let's stop indulging in misperceptions, misconceptions about how the world economy works that humility, that kind of skepticism is important. Before you can fix a problem, you have to diagnose it properly. And politicians are notorious for making claims that they control things they just don't control. And we've seen a lot of those claims happening in the last few weeks and months. Right, absolutely. I mean, this current campaign is just a uh, a showcase of that kind of magical thinking. So one of the solutions is to be skeptical, yeah? Right, right. So the big takeaway here is that there are a couple of big drivers of the economy. One is productivity. Politicians can't do much about that. The other is uh, is population growth. And, you know, for somebody who was me, who was raised on the population bomb and being really concerned, and, and it is a legitimate concern about the ecological impact of Absolutely. continually growing population. But as the global population growth slows, which environmentally is a good thing, at least in the short term, economically, it's a real challenge. And, and it, one of the things Rashir says that I think is really interesting is that one and a half percent is the new two and a half percent. In other words, if you have a growth of one and a half percent, which is pretty much what we've been having in the past five years in the United States, that's actually not too bad. And that really runs counter to what we've heard from so many other people. Well, people promise all kinds of things. Yeah. 
Rashir spent a lot of time talking about the increase in the population of the workforce, and he mentioned that there are three ways to do that. He's skeptical that any of them will come to pass in the next few years. One is to increase immigration. <laughs> that sure runs counter to what we're hearing. Right. And, and then he said increase the retirement age, which would certainly ease the burden on our social security system. He also talked about, not in relation to the U.S., but in relation to China and other countries, the enormous burden of having too much debt, whether it's debt that's held by individuals, institutions, or, uh, or by the government. And we are cruising to a real problem there that is not being discussed at all. Then the final point he made about the workforce is encouraging or increasing female participation in the workforce. You know, the, the U.S. was really heading down that road for quite a while, and then it, that seems to have sort of stalled. It'd be interesting to find out why and, and, and maybe do something about that. A change in child care policies, whether it's private or through the government, may be one way to address that. It might be. Or it might be that people are making choices that they're happy with. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah don't necessarily want to be in the workforce. I mean, we don't know. These are questions that would require some research. Yeah, and that's one of the things that comes out of this interview from this global expert. I mean, here we are in this huge investment bank in the middle of New York, and what we're hearing is humility. Yes. And and how much we don't know. That the experts don't know as much as they think they do, and all the countries that were proclaimed as, you know, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, they were just going to take over the global economy. Ten years ago, that was a very fashionable idea. What happened? China was going to grow at 8% forever. You know, I started my career as a tech journalist covering Japan when everybody thought Japan was going to run the world. They were buying the Empire State Building, and everybody had to emulate Japan. Boom. That disappeared, and they've never come back. But let's end on a cheerful note, and that is, Rashir is saying that compared to most other countries, the U.S. is in relatively good shape. Relatively. I think we could do better. Okay. Um, but relative to, you know, uh, to most other countries, yeah, we're doing, you know, we're doing okay. And we're in pretty good shape, too. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're here at the headquarters of Morgan Stanley in New York, and uh, our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And the music you're starting to hear now is by Lou Stravinsky. Thanks for joining us. The show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. And the website, Jim. Howdowefixit.me. And DaviesContent.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.